Let's worship him in his word. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going through this gospel of John and we've made it to this chapter. The setting, let me remind you, is in the upper room. This is just before Jesus is going to die on the cross. He's at the end of his three-year ministry. He's preached the gospel of repentance and faith. His message has been authenticated by the miracles that he has done, like no one else. There's even a voice from heaven that spoke, confirming Christ's message. But he's going to the cross. These are the final hours. Soon he will die, buried, rise, and then ascend into heaven. His disciples are going to remain. 1336, Jesus would say, you cannot come now. He's going. They must remain. His disciples then, in remaining, will remaining a time of great trouble. That's how it begins in verse 1 of chapter 14, acknowledging that. They're going to be disappointed in a number of ways because things just aren't working out the way they had imagined. No doubt they'll be depressed. They'll no longer be able to look directly into the face of Jesus They'll no longer have him by their side to provide encouragement. They're going to be dispersed across the lands by a great persecution that will follow. So Jesus gives them comforting words. That's what this section is about. Really, all of this section in the upper room is a preparation to the disciples, great encouragement. Notice in verse 1, it begins that way. In 14, it says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And then jump down to verse 27. We won't get that far today. But notice here, it's repeated again. Jesus leaves them peace, his peace, not as the world would give you. But he says, as I give you. And then he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's the context in which this message resides this morning. They're going to have trouble in this world. He'll tell them in a couple of chapters later, 1633, I've said these things so that you can have peace. Well, they're in trouble. How are they going to have peace? In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, and that's what you need to know. That's how you cannot have trouble in the midst of trouble. That's how you can have peace in the midst of a great storm. What's the resource? How will they overcome? How will they deal with the tribulation that's no doubt going to face them? There's only one way. That's Christ. Faith in him. And if you don't have faith in Christ, you're in big trouble. 
will affect your heart. Used here as mind. That's what heart means. Not just your emotional state. Of course, that's going to be affected to some great degree. But the appeal is to the, the mind. It is the object of your faith, Christ alone, that's going to make a difference. He is calling them first to genuine faith. A faith that is not wishful thinking, but a sincere response of the heart. Something that's not self-generated, but supernaturally imparted. Something you couldn't accomplish on your own, so I'm not asking you to do it on your own. This is the grace of Christ working in your heart. Jesus is the object, and our faith is in him and him alone. Notice how he begins in verse 1 of chapter 14. <clears throat> he emphasizes faith. The word translated most in your translations will say believe. That's the word for faith. He says believe in God. You, you do believe in God. Well, understand the full revelation of who God is. Believe in me, he would say. So twice there. He's expanding their understanding of who God is. They think of God typically at this time in that perspective, maybe in terms of God in his transcendence. He is certainly a holy God. So holy that many Jews then and even now won't even say his name or write it. In fact, they would, they would write the word Yahweh in the Hebrew text, but say the word Adonai, which is Lord. They would see it one way and say it another because of their respect for God and his transcendence. Christ is among them, living among them. It is a self-disclosure of who God is. This is a disclosure of who the Father is. He makes known that he is imminent with him. The transcendent God, exalted in all his dignity, exercises authority over his creation. But now in Christ he is present with his creation, in a personal and intimate way among his people. And perhaps you've heard the term, Emmanuel, God with us. That's who Jesus is. They had doubts, they had certain uncertainties, if you will. So he appeals to them. Notice verse 10 in our chapter, again, do not believe. That's the problem. They're not believing. And so he asks them. And then again, one more time, he says, listen, there's nothing that I have ever done or said that would contradict what I have claimed, that I am God incarnate. He says, if anything, you ought to believe the facts, believe the works that I do. There were none like what Jesus did. Verse 11. Four times thus far in this text, Jesus appeals to faith. Not just a theological concept, an idea about belief, not, as I mentioned, wishful thinking. This is, a, this is an appeal that is affirmed by facts that vindicated his message. They're struggling now because this faith is not going to come about just by observation of what is true and what is logical. This will come about through the work 
of grace in their heart as they grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. They demonstrate in their life a certain degree of immaturity. They'll need to grow. And so Jesus takes this time, a very important time, to remind them of the incredible work of Christ in the heart of the believer, this faith. This faith has been granted to them is an instrument by which the darkness in which they existed would change the world. And they did. It would change the world through the light of life that is in Jesus Christ. So let's look at our text that we want to focus on, which is verses 12 through 14. And Jesus emphasizes here the works of the believer, which come about by faith in Christ. He says, truly, truly, verse 12, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these you'll do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let us pray. Father, what profound truth is this. I pray that we would hear and heed the very words of Christ. May you grant great peace to those who believe and great unrest for those who do not. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Notice verse 12 in our text. Truly, truly, amen, amen is what it says in Greek. Truly, truly, it's, it's an emphasis, it's a te- teaching technique, if you will, a learning aid to cause the listener to pay attention. It's a mark, if you will, by which you can go back to time and time again. And if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, I pray that you would indeed do so. Every believer, everyone who has faith in Christ, then and now, possesses a power, an incredible power in Christ, which will enable you to fulfill the calling to which you have been called. The disciples in this immediate context are called to an impossible task. This is a small group. They're going to be left. They're going to be left to fill some very big shoes. Might I say impossible? Who is going to fill the shoes of Jesus Christ when he leaves the earth? They're too grand to fill. But yet, they are called for this very purpose. They're going to need divine enablement, and Christ will give them that. He explains to them, this is going to come about through faith. The disciples then and the disciples now, we often forget about the fruit, which is faith in Christ Jesus. The fruit 
in Christ Jesus results in, in our text, as I'll enumerate them, good works, greater works, and glorious works. Let's look at it in the text. First, good works, verse 12. <clears throat> Notice it says, whoever believes, the, the word whoever is supplied in English, it helps us, quite literally, it's a participle, believing. The believing in me, it's easier to understand it, what, what it intends to say. It's the one who continually believes, that is, someone who has general faith, genuine faith, not someone who just makes a profession of faith and then no longer believes. That's not a believing in one. The, the believing is someone who is true, a true disciple in Christ Jesus. This one who is a true, and I might say all believing ones in Christ, will do the works that I do, the good works. It's the ones that Christ does. These are the good works. This is going to be necessary because Christ will no longer walk on earth. They're called to carry on the kinds of works that Jesus did. As I mentioned, it's a great responsibility. But Jesus is promising that anyone, everyone, the believing one, will be enabled by his grace to do these good works, if you will, of Jesus. Now, we might not be used to using the term works. It's used a lot in the New Testament in this way. Works simply are, uh, is a way to describe things that are done. It could be things that are evil or things that are good. If you remember back in John chapter 3, judgment has come, verse 19 of John 3, John 3, 19, judgment has come into the world because people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. He might choose the term deed, something you do, something you think, your behavior. They're evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works, there's the word again, should be exposed. In this case, Evil works, wicked works. But everyone is a contrast. Verse 21 of chapter 3, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. That's the works of Christ that we're talking about. Not works of the flesh, but works of Christ. Carried out by God. That is enabled by God to do these very good things. All people do works, if you will. Christians are distinct in that they run to the light, that is, to God's Word. They'll take an examination when you confront them because they're wanting to conform their works, their behavior, their thoughts, their ideas with what is true, what is right, what is lovely, what is pure, what is Christ-like. And the contrast, those that are engaged in evil works, if you will, run from that spotlight like a bunch of cockroaches in the dark. 
because their works are evil and they don't want them to be exposed by the truth. So they suppress the truth. They push back on it and run to evil and the darkness. All true believers will do, verse 12 of our text, will do the works that Christ does. He says, they'll do the works that I do. There were no evil works done by Christ, right? No guile in his mouth, no evil, not even something he said. He was there before those that were uh, against him, his opponents, and gave them the opportunity. Examine me. Is there anything that I have done or anything that I have said? The only thing they could charge him for was the statement that he is God, which is the truth. You will have works, beloved, if you're a believing one in Christ, you will have the works of Christ. This is something that's consistent in Scripture. There are some that even in our day that have a tendency to want to protect the idea of grace because we're saved by grace, not by works. In other words, it isn't our work that's going to bring us to Christ. It's his work. I understand that. But don't be so worried about protecting that that you don't recognize that how great his grace is in changing the very nature of those that are the believing ones into where they will do the very works of Christ, not because of their own initiative, but because God has enabled them to do so. They've, their works are carried out in, in God, empowered by the Spirit through a regenerate heart. Faith without works, James, one of the first preachers in Jerusalem said, well, what good is it if, if there are no good works? Can that faith save him? James 2.14. And the answer is no. That's not a saving faith. A saving faith, a faith that is regenerate, will change the very heart to where you do the works of Christ. It's one thing you could do to examine your own heart. Is there anything that I'm doing that resembles Christ at all? Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, and obviously good works are in play here, is, is dead. It's not a living faith. It's not a regenerate faith. It's the kind of faith the demons would have, as James would say. Or we might say, from John's perspective, it's the faith of Judas, who has already been dismissed from the conversation in chapter 14. Saving faith is ultimately a change of heart. It's a new direction. There's a promise in the Old Testament that God would do that very thing under the new covenant. Change the heart. Put a new spirit within you. Remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and give you a live, living heart. This was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And there on that night, as he communed with his disciples, he picked up the cup of blessing. Luke records in 22.20 of his gospel, this cup 
that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All of that was accomplished through Jesus Christ. The new heart, the regenerate heart, through the atonement of Christ. A new covenant to which all his disciples would have the benefit of. Even those that were outside the camp, we would call them, or they did then, as Gentiles. And Paul would describe to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, I'll read it for you. Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, that's the Jews who had the covenant. They had the covenant. Gentiles are outside. Remember that you were one time separated from Christ. That's the Messiah. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, you're, you're not in. Strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope without God in this world. But everything changed through the incarnate Son. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. This redemption in Christ is not just a new destination. Oh, you get to go to heaven when you die. It's rather a new disposition in life. It results in the work of Christ in your heart and it's demonstrated in your life. These are good works that will be done for those that are the believing ones in Christ. Turn to chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians, a passage you're very familiar with. Paul expanding on this idea that every believer that is regenerate will do the works of Christ in their life. In chapter 2 and verse 8, you may have this memorized, for by grace you're saved, what? Through faith. It's the instrumentality of faith. Belief. Genuine belief. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. What is a gift of God? Grace, of course, that's what the word means. But also faith. This Faith is a response of the regenerate heart. Just as a newborn child would breathe because they're alive, therefore a Christian who is made alive in Christ will express faith, belief in Christ. Needs to grow stronger than the disciples that needed to grow. They were alive in Christ. Verse 9, it's a gift, all of it. It's not of works, that is, works in the sense that you're doing these things to somehow bring about your relationship in Christ. No, that's a gift. All of it's a gift, even your faith. It's not of your own doing, if you will, so that no one may boast. Our boast is in Christ and Christ alone. Now, verse 10 is where I wanted to get at. You're familiar with the first two, 8 and 9, but look at 10. It kind of completes the thought. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Good works. 
Every believer has been given a new heart, which is evidenced by the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord in faith. And therefore, as a work of the Master, his workmanship, his new creation in Christ. And what is a necessary result of that is good works, the works that Christ is doing. God has prepared, the text goes on, beforehand, that is, this has all been ordained by God, that we should walk in them. You will walk in them, and you should walk in them. Paul's not addressing it here. He'll address it in Romans 7, and there's other places as well. The believer who's given a regenerate heart is given this heart But there is that sinful flesh that remains until this body is done away with. And it's just not the physical body. It's both the material and the immaterial. It's your mind. Primarily the mind. But it won't be gone until you're in a glorified state and given a new body. In the meantime, there's a certain struggle. But the call is to walk in them, and to grow in this faith, you need encouragement to do so, and that's what Christ has given them then. This is what Paul gives them now. Walk means your manner of life, your lifestyle, how you live. And how you live, if you're a Christian, should be characterized by by good works, not that it somehow gets you merit before God. It is who you have been made to be. It is who you are. And we can forget that at times. The disciples forgot that. And Jesus is reminding them. If you're in Ephesians, just jump over to chapter 4. Paul's going to give the same encouragement. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you, verse 1 of chapter 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What are you being called? From darkness to light. Now live like it. That's what he's saying. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's not all-inclusive what it means to be like Christ, to, to have these types of good works that Christ did, but it certainly is a good example, isn't it? It's certainly not any less than that. A man of great strength and power in what? Humility. Gentleness. Patience. And bearing with one another in love. And I would define love simply as grace and mercy. Giving them things they don't deserve and not giving them what they do deserve. Why? Because that's what God in Christ Jesus has done for us. And eager to maintain the unity, you'd have to be humble to do that. I want to strive for unity. (laughs) And if you don't have any example of what disunity looks like, you can just look out in our land today. 
and all these factions trying to strive together for unity. You know how their definition of unity is? Think like me, act like me, believe like me, then we'll all be unified. Here's how to bring unity to the world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It will change everything. It will change everything in your heart. It will change everything in your home. It will change everything within the church. It will change everything within the culture. That is the answer, and we have it. We know Christ. He's the exemplar. Peter, who was here in this upper room, would say in his epistle, you have been called to this. Christ left you an example so that you would follow in his steps. Big shoes, I understand. But he's enabled every believer to do the works that Christ has done. This humility, patience, gentleness, kindness, love. Back to our text, John 14 and verse 12. He adds another dimension to this good works. It isn't just the works that Christ did, which that's big enough, but he says, greater works that I'm going to do in verse 12. You see that? He says, greater works than these. He's pointing at the things that he has done because, and he gives a reason, because I'm going to the Father. Works, as I mentioned, is a broad category. Here, the works are specific to Christ, good works, Aragon is the word. It encompasses all good works. It is true that Christ performed a plethora of miracles. So many that there was no comparison. Now John doesn't review all of them. He specifically identifies seven key. But that wasn't all that he did. In fact, if you were to catalog all that he did, you wouldn't have a book big enough. Or it'd be too big for you to carry. These miracles that Jesus did are good works. They authenticated him. Notice in our previous verse, or verse 11, he said, well, you can believe on the count of the works that I did. And, and he's referring, I would say here, not only good works as we just discussed, but also the miraculous works. John uses the word sign, but works encompasses miracles as well. He did many works and wonders and signs that God did through him. These miracles served a purpose, though. It did authenticate Jesus as a messenger, and it authenticated his message. And there was no comparison. When he left, he did give those immediate disciples the ability to perform those very things, which authenticated their message and them as messengers. They did the signs of the apostles, the sent ones, the specific ones that were sent by Jesus Christ. But if you, you review their life and read through the text of the various epistles, as well as the book of Acts, 
Looks like early on they, they did do some of the miracles, never nearly as much as Christ did, but they did some. But later on, as time passed, it kind of faded away. It coincided, it coincided with the completion of God's word. By the time of Paul's end of his life, you remember Timothy is sick, his stomach is bothering him. They would have had a lot of bacteria in the water. And, and Timothy, a righteous man, not wanting to have his mind altered by drugs, would not put, mix any wine, which they did to purify the water, typically three to one, five to one. And Paul tells him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, don't drink water only because you have a stomach issue. Take a little wine. He, he couldn't just heal that stomach problem. He told him to use medicine. By the time he gets to Second Timothy, he leaves a friend of his in chapter 4, Trophimus. He was ill. He didn't heal him. So these works then weren't, that they did were great, but they're not greater anywhere close to what Jesus did. And they faded away as they became less necessary. So in what way then would all the believers, that's in context, not just these apostles and not just for a period of time, it's even for now. So in what way will greater works be done in verse 12? The key to note here, I think, that unlocks this is this phrase that he makes, they're going to do greater because I'm going to the Father. He's certainly not talking greater in the sense of quality. That didn't happen. Who could do anything greater than Jesus or in perfection like he would? No one ever spoke like Jesus. No one ever acted like Jesus. No one ever performed the miracles like Jesus, even the apostles. His disciples would certainly do greater works in the sense of scope and, the, and quantity of it. I mean, it, 12 that he sent out. Jesus was limited in his earthly ministry by space and time. His ministry then in these apostles would be multiplied. Exponential growth would occur. The good works of the saints as well would multiply the effect of Jesus' ministry, and all that's true. But why does he bother saying here, because I'm going to the Father? What, what does that have to do with this? I mean, wouldn't this multiplication effect work anyway, whether Jesus remained or he went to the Father? I mean, if you, if you have people going out preaching the gospel, people getting saved, then you have a multiplication factor, as then those disciples make disciples and so forth. So I think he's not only talking about the scope of good works, but the greatest work of all is finished. And those that remained had the privilege to proclaim the greatest work of all, that is the gospel. The completed work of Christ 
it's finished. This greatest work is the new birth. And in great clarity, they're able to proclaim the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, the ascension into heaven, and his second coming. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Here you get a little bit of preview of it. Because in their day, perhaps, and certainly in our day, if you watch religious television anyway, people would get carried away with the potential and the idea of doing miraculous sign gifts. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 16, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to go preach the gospel. He empowers them with unique gifts and ability. He reminds them in verse 16 that if anybody hears you, it's because they're hearing me. And if anyone rejects you, it's because they reject Christ. And by the way, that's a great assurance to go out and preach the gospel, isn't it? I mean, if you've ever been in sales, one of the hardest things in sales is the fear of rejection. Because then you take it personal. You think, oh, well, they don't like me. Well, no, maybe they just didn't need a widget today. Maybe they'll need it tomorrow. And so salespeople are taught to overcome that. Here is greater than that. The great truth is simply this. If you're preaching Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of your sin, they're not objecting to something personal that you know and have and want them to have. They are rejecting the Lord of glory. So he encourages them and he sends them out and they go and they have great joy. When they come back from preaching the gospel, accompanied with this empowerment that Christ has given them in a miraculous way, their response to Jesus is this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They didn't have some incantation they gave, but rather they're out preaching the gospel and the Darkness is not overcoming the light. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like a lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. That's a great thing to have. How would you like to go out on mission with that kind of a known ability and the demonstration of it? But nevertheless, and here's the key, what I wanted to get to, verse 20. As great as that might be, and it would be great, but nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Don't make that your focus, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the greatest work. It's the miracle of faith. When somebody repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the greatest work. Jesus is going now to his Father. For him to leave and go to the Father means what? It is finished. It has been accomplished. All righteousness has been fulfilled. He has atoned for the sin on the cross. He has risen from the grave in triumph. He has ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of glory. He is Lord of all, as he promised. And he will return. 
That is a far greater message to give than this is going to happen. Believe it. It's going to happen. We can say it has happened. It's done. It is finished. And based on that, the commission then to the disciples will be to go and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. What will they get to proclaim? All of it. From the beginning to the end. God's promises fulfilled. And Christ promises then to be with them until the end of the age. Their Messiah, Deliverer, is no longer one to come. It is one who has come, who has conquered, and is with them. It is one that is triumph. It's curious to me these days, and I don't want to make light of it, of the global worldwide pandemic that we're currently having. We should be concerned, and I've learned a lot, about disease, virus, and other things. There are precautions and protocols that you ought to take, particularly if you're ill, around someone that is ill, or in a category, and so forth, or a job, whatever, that would expose you to things. So I don't want to make light of that. But there's something far deadlier that affects every single person. You know, 99.5% whatever will not have a fatality due to this COVID-19. Worldwide, we have an unprecedented response to it. Some of it, good. People are desperately looking for a vaccine to cure that small percentage of potential. In fact, they would forego testing that might need be, be done because they've got to get it now. Even though it may be produced and it may be harmful in time because we don't know. We've got to get it now, even though some of these strains, no doubt, have been brought about by stem cells from aborted fetuses. But we've got to have it now because there's this fraction of a percent possibility that this temporal life might be over. I, I did say we should have some concerns, right? And I think the concerns are warranted. But in the bigger picture... What's the greatest concern you have? It's appointed unto man once to die. You will die. And after that is the judgment. You will stand before the judge of the earth. And the glorious message for those who have this work, the believing ones, you have the vaccine. It's tested and tried. It works. And it's from a pure source. And the cure is 100%. And there's 100% that are affected by it who will die, and the cure is 100%. Do you understand what greater thing you possess as a Christian right now to save the world? But nobody cares. They won't alter their life or lifestyle to resolve this certain problem. But believer in Christ 
recognize you have something far greater. It isn't a mask. It's the beautiful, pure garments of Jesus' Christ's own righteousness, which every believer will be clad in. And only through the righteousness of Christ will you be able to stand in the day of judgment. Christ has given you this greater work to do. That is to proclaim this truth. Oh, proclaim the others. Help people. Care for people, certainly. But make this a priority. A greater work. The victory is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where is your sting, O death? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ's much greater work. When Jesus leaves, he said, because I'm going to my Father, the work is completed. But beyond that, we'll get into that next time in greater detail. Go ahead and read on in chapter 14. But he's going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in the believers, to empower the believers, to proclaim this message, to live this life. In Acts chapter 1, he promises after this you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He's talking about concentric circles moving out from Jerusalem. Not just here, not locally, but this will be worldwide. It'll cover the entire world. Pentecost comes. The apostles are gifted with the power of the Holy Spirit and in their proclamation they will preach the message, this simple message that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. He will call and plead to the people, save yourself from this crooked generation. A message which we need even now. In response, those who received the word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. If you read on, it says, And the Lord added daily such as were being saved. You know, when Jesus walked this earth, the best estimates we could have as far as true disciples, maybe a little over 500. 3,000 in one day. A greater work, wouldn't you say? The gospel is finished. The gospel is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It will change the hearts of people. And the close of the book of Acts, describing these men who preached the gospel, it would say, they turn the world upside down. Greater work. And finally, back to our text, John 14, verse 13. This work is not only good, the good works of Christ that will be done in the lives of the believers. It's greater in the sense we preach a completed gospel. But finally, it's a very glorious work that he has granted to us. A work works that we might do bring glory to him. And that's the, that's the focus of this verse 13 to 14. 
And let me see if I can explain it a bit with the time that remains. Whatever you ask in my name, I'm in 1413, I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Notice here, twice he says, in my name. Verse 13 and verse 14. This is not a mantra to be added as a coda to our prayers as somehow some sort of magical incantation that will bring about God's favor. We understand that. We know that. Some of you don't pray in Jesus' name or add that at the end, that phraseology, because you don't want it to be some Christianese trite mantra and so forth. I typically add it because I don't intend it to be that way. Here's what I intend to do. I tend to think about the name of Christ who makes all things possible. You can do it either way. It's not talking about ending a prayer a certain way. I like to do it. If you don't, that's fine too. That's not what he's talking about. In his name simply means all that he is, all that he has accomplished, all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do. That's what it is. It's the essence of who he is. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, our only connection to the Father. We pray to the Father because he's our Father, because we're in Christ, the Son. And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit whom he sent. We pray in Jesus' name as children of God, unified with Christ, Abiding in him in chapter 15, it'll mention. Abide in Christ, that is someone who is genuinely in Christ, in union with Christ. Ask whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. Why? That the Father might be glorified, verse 13, in the Son. The purpose of all we do, including prayer, is to glorify God. This was Jesus' earthly ministry to glorify God. We pray to the Father. We pray that Jesus would be glorified. Now, when you pray, you pray for certain outcomes. Often, I do too, as I thought through this. We, We pray that we might recover from some illness, that there might be some cure. We pray that someone might be comforted in a time of trouble. And fine, we should. But we should pray in such a way that those outcomes would glorify the Son, that Jesus would be glorified, that we would ask in faith, in his strength, that we'd be perfected in whatever weaknesses we had to find his grace to be sufficient. Here's how you pray, as Jesus would teach us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Why would he give you daily bread? Just because you want something to eat? No, because he's glorified in the provision of it. Forgive us our debts. Why? Just because so we can not stand in judgment? No, that it would demonstrate the glory of his forgiveness, his patience, his love, 
his faithfulness. Forgive us as we forgive others. Do we forgive others to bring about some merit to us? No, the only reason I forgive people is because what God has done for me in Christ Jesus and forgiving me. And, and I hope you come across at a certain point in life where you're dealing with someone else and, and you, you must forgive them. You must be, forgive them from the heart because of God's forgiveness for you. This glorifies him. And, but don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, why? Just so that we, we won't get, get attacked by Satan? No, because it glorifies him, showing his protection in our life. All of our prayers are for his kingdom, his power, and his glory forever and ever. Amen? That's the power of prayer that calls for God to be glorified that Jesus Christ may be made known, that his grace would be sufficient in your time of great weakness. Verse 14 of chapter 14, he says, Well, ask me anything, and I'll do it. Ask it in my name, and, and I will do it. John will elaborate on this, and I'll just read it for you. In 1 John 5, 14, he says, This is the confidence that we have towards him, speaking of Christ. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What confidence does John have in his prayer? I don't, I don't know exactly what his will is in this thing or that thing that I'm praying for, right? I don't know exactly how it's going to work out, so how can we have this confidence? Rooted in your prayer is that Christ would be glorified. Whatever the circumstance might be, you could be like Paul and pray for this great thorn in the flesh to be removed. But not if it wouldn't glorify Christ. You will suffer it and bear it that Christ would be glorified. Ask in accordance to his will that his will would be done, that his glory would be magnified. All of your prayers will be answered according to his purposes, that Christ would be glorified. Come before him in great confidence. Never be weary to Receive his grace and mercy. I'm not suggesting you don't pray for certain circumstances or situations. I, I've prayed for the salvation of every one of my children. And by the way, I pray for the salvation of every one of yours. And I will never leave the throne of grace. Not pray praying for them. And I encourage you to do the same. I also pray for their sanctification. They would be made more like Christ continually. You know why? Because that will glorify the Son. 
It's not so much of them getting this, that, or the other. Their opportunity is that Jesus Christ would be glorified. That's the way we pray. He has given us the works of Christ for those that believe greater works to preach the gospel and glorious works to pray in Jesus' name. I pray that you indeed truly, truly believe him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant the faith required to trust, to grow, and have your grace manifested in this life. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to respond where you are in whatever way Christ has spoken to you today. Take a moment even now.